Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. Here at Grace Life on Sunday mornings, Pastor Frank has been sharing with us from the book of Nehemiah. He's going through it verse by verse, one chapter per week. We wanted to share that with you here on the podcast, so we're going to start with that today. Chapter 1, A Man with a Burden. Here's Pastor Frank. I want to begin this morning, and I'd like you to pay close attention because I want to take you to a powerful, uh, poignant, uh, we could downright call it painful, literary masterpiece. And I want you to be able to see it, not just hear it. So could we put it up there? There we go. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. We'll be passing out tissue with the ushers in a little bit. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Let's close in prayer. Literary scholars believe that that rhyme was originally a riddle. They would share the riddle and and ask, what is Humpty Dumpty? And of course, the normal answer was that he was an egg. I did a little deeper study into that this week, since that's what I'm paid to do. And I dug into the history of Humpty Dumpty. And I found that literary scholars have offered numerous explanations of the symbolism behind Humpty Dumpty. Aren't you glad you came this morning? The one that caught my eye said that eggs are a universal symbol of the origin of life. Now, don't go there. Which came first? We'll never be done. And they believe the rhyme was coined to lament the fact that humanity has experienced a great fall. And humanity now lies broken. And not even the great, wise, or powerful of this world are able to put us back together again. One writer said this. That's the world we live in. It specializes in producing broken people who, once broken, discover that no power on earth can put them back together again. It's the world we live in. Yes, it is. And it's very easy in this world to get hurt and wounded and abused. And when that happens, notice I didn't say if. When that happens, it's also very easy to get frustrated and discouraged and overwhelmed at the circumstances you find yourself in. And when you're overwhelmed, it can be very difficult to even get out of bed in the morning let alone pursue life with any semblance of intensity. And when you look around, which I guarantee you will do, looking for help, looking for hope, like Humpty Dumpty, you will find that no power on earth can put you back together again. And you might find yourself in a state of hopelessness. 
I have great news for you today. There's one more place to look, and that's up. To a person, the living God, who not only has the power to put you together, but the desire to do it. Because God loves you and cares for you. And he wants you to know that whatever you're going through, my friends, it's not the end of the story. And that's the focus I want to put on your hearts with this study of a book called Nehemiah over the next couple of months. The circumstances of the writing of this book are not good. At this point in their history, Israel is is a nation that is no nation. These are dark days. And what makes it worse for them is they are the ones responsible for the dark days. You know, as human beings, it's one thing to suffer circumstantially because of the fallen world we live in. That's one thing. But it's quite another to suffer consequentially because of your own sinful behavior. When you are the cause of your suffering, it can very likely increase the experience of guilt and shame and hopelessness. And the responsibility you put on yourself to try to get out of the situation that you're in will wear you out. Please hear me today, my friends. The heart of God, though indeed concerned about how you got into the mess, has a greater concern. It's how to get you out of it. Because he's greatly concerned about who you are. And that is really, really good news. And the children of Israel are about to experience this heart of God through a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, as so often happens in the biblical account, is a man who lives up to his name. In the ancient days, as I meditated on that, I think what happened is that people took great care in naming their children. And then what they would do is throughout their young lives, they would put upon them the meaning of the name that they had given that child. So they're raised with that sense of identity. Does that make sense? This is who you are. I didn't know this growing up. But in the sovereignty of God, I am trying to live up to my name. I am sure my parents did not do this on purpose because we didn't know God, but they named me Frank, which means free man. They named me Charles, which means free. And my last name, Friedman, from a Hebrew root, means freed man, which means once we were slaves, we're not slaves anymore. In the sovereignty of God, they named me free, free, free. So I like to run around the house and tell Janet, I'm free cubed, baby. (laughs) Free to the third power. And I don't live that way, but I'm sure trying to. Nehemiah, what a great name. Means Yahweh comforts. Don't read it lightly. He doesn't just say Nehemiah comforts. He says Yahweh comforts. 
Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the God who makes promises for good to his people and makes good those promises even in spite of their rebelliousness against him. He is faithful, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, even when we are faithless. How many of you find that to be good news? Okay, a few honest people. How about Luke 6? He's kind to the unfaithful. I really like that one. This is God. Yahweh comforts. And Nehemiah is the comfort of God with skin on to his fellow human beings. The people of Israel need comforting. They were perpetually rebelling against God. And finally, after centuries of warning, God disciplined them. I hope you heard that word. He did not punish them. He disciplined them. It's a very important distinction. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it tells us that no discipline is pleasant in the moment. I mean, we don't like being disciplined. But from God's perspective, the discipline comes with purpose, and the purpose is correction, which leads to restoration. You're not living like who you are, but I'm going to bring along some circumstances to help you live like who you are. Because when you live like who you are, it's really ultimate freedom and power and joy and peace. The discipline began in 605 BC when a king named Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and conquered Jerusalem. Those stubborn little rebels continued to rebel against him, so he came back. 586. Said, I've had enough. And he leveled the city to the ground. There were a few left behind, but he carted off most of the nation. Ancients did that with a purpose, my friends, that you need to understand. They would then move their people into the conquered land. They would intermarry, and that race would be gone. The nation they carted off would live in the conquering land, and they would intermarry, and the race would be gone. The purpose was to perpetually exterminate their enemy, wipe them from the face of the earth. That doesn't happen with Israel because God had made a promise. They're not going to be bred out of existence. In Jeremiah 29, I love this. God says, I will. This is a task preserving the nation of Israel that's not going to be delegated to an angel. God says, I will. After 70 years of discipline, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you, prosper you, give you a hope, give you a future. You will call on me again, and I will answer you, and you will seek me, and I will be found by you. And true to his word, God did it. He used Persia to conquer Babylon. And then he used the king of Persia, Cyrus, to grant permission for the return of the nation and the rebuilding of their city, their temple, and their walls. Zerubbabel headed back with 50,000 people, followed by Ezra, and they rebuilt the temple, glory. But they weren't able to rebuild the walls. Walls are built to protect. With no walls, the Israelites were defenseless, against their enemies, and the enemies were taking advantage of the situation. Things were not going well for them. The task was too big. Their resources were not up to the demand, and they were paralyzed. 
How many of you know that your overwhelming circumstances can paralyze you? So they were now home in a land that wasn't really home. Isolated, alone, and powerless. There's a key prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, 150 years before all of these events. Listen to the words. They're going to be very important for our study. Jeremiah, used by the Holy Spirit, communicates these words. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? Did you hear it? The implication is, when you're going through a tough time like that, will there be anybody who even cares? Some are so full of indifference, they'll even state it. You ever heard these words? Ask me if I care. George Bernard Shaw in his play, The Devil's Disciple, said these words. The worst sin toward our fellow man is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Who will have pity? Who will have sorrow? Who will even care enough to ask? There's an answer to that question. His name is Nehemiah. If you've been here at Grace Life, I trust you remember that last year we did a study of the one another passages in the New Testament. It was a very special study for me. I hope it was for you. We saw the glory of what a people united can accomplish when they're knit together corporately in the same purpose and the same experience of the power of God. Wonderful. In the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see what one individual can do. You see, in the realm of humanity, when we are facing an overwhelming task, these words are often heralded as a disclaimer by individuals. What can I do? I'm just one man. What can I do? I'm just one woman. The book of Nehemiah, my friends, decimates that excuse. It demonstrates for us that all it takes is one man. All it takes is one woman to take God at his word and make themselves available to him. And God will do his kingdom work through them as they follow him. Lives will be touched and transformed. You know, when I started out in ministry so many years ago, I had a precious man of faith come up to me with his old gray head. I think I was 25. He said these words, I've never forgotten them. He said, Frank, the world has yet to see what God can do through the man is fully yielded to him. By the grace of God, Frank, be that man. I've not been that man. Tried. But Nehemiah certainly comes close. In this book, which are his memoirs, 
we're going to see a very ordinary man who put his faith in an extraordinary God. And the world stood amazed at what God accomplished through him. And through the study of this man's life, I've been wanting to teach it for a long time, but the Holy Spirit hasn't opened the door. I pray that we will all make ourselves available to this extraordinary God. So that in the words of Hudson Taylor, we would attempt great things for God as we expect great things from God. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a, a book that many of us have never looked at. And it's been to our detriment. It's so easy to look at it and say, oh, that was about Israel. No, it's about us. It's about the world we live in. It's about the people of this world who are struggling. And the opportunity we have as we trust you for you to work through us to give them hope and encouragement and truth that leads to transformation and the experience of an extraordinary God. What can I do? We're about to see. And our prayers that the Holy Spirit would capture every part of our being as we learn what to do. We're going to trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a chapter a week. And what I want to do with this first chapter is break it down into six major points of emphasis to help us follow not only the flow of thought, but capture the intensity of what's happening on this first chapter. And we're going to start with what we'll call his pedigree. His pedigree. Look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and we'll stop right there. Isn't that exciting? You say, Frank, why is that exciting? There's nothing there. I said, that's exactly the point. That's what makes it exciting. There's nothing on these pages to identify this guy as a mover shaker. He did not have great strength like Samson. He was not educated or trained for leadership like Moses. He didn't have great wealth and influence like Solomon. He had no preparation for leadership like Joshua under Moses. Now we are told, please hear this, that he's the son of Hakaliah, and that's exciting. Say, why is that? Because we don't know nothing about him either. There's no ancestry. There's no genes. There's no family history. This, I put it to you this way, is the Holy Spirit's way of telling anyone who will read this book that we're about to read about an ordinary guy. An average Joe. You and me. kind of person who doesn't really stand out. In the eyes of the world, and nobody. Exactly the kind of person God likes to take and turn into a somebody. 
and rewrite history. Remember when God chose a new king for Israel back in Samuel? God told Samuel, go to the household of Jesse. One of his sons is going to be the king. Samuel showed up. Who did Samuel see? First, Eliab. The oldest, the tallest, the strongest. That's got to be the one. God said, no, that's not the one. Remember what God said at that time? It's not the one, Samuel. But, but he looks. Yeah, I, I don't judge by looks. I don't see the way man sees. I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. I look at the heart. It's not the one. And then one by one, the sons are paraded by and everyone is rejected by God until it looks like Jesse's going to run out of sons. And Samuel says, are there any others? And Jesse says, well, you can't mean the runt of the litter. The youngest, the smallest, the weakest. That's, that's the one. That's the one. Why is he the one? Because he's going to be described later as the man after God's own heart. The inside. David. My friends, this is where a lot of people go awry with the book of Nehemiah. When I decided to teach this book, I, I found out that there's a lot of books written on Nehemiah. And I was unable to use most of them. You know why? They all came to Nehemiah and they all talk about his leadership abilities. Now, please hear me. I don't want to be critical. That's okay to do. It's okay to do biblical observation of a passage and then make practical application of a passage. But beware when you do that, you might miss the heart of the passage. We need to be careful here. As I've read this book and studied this book, it was not that he was qualified to do a great work for God. It's that God qualified him as he looked to God to receive from God. I don't have it, Lord. But you do. And I'll look to you. We got to pay close attention here, my friends, and heed the implied warning. The people of God throughout the Bible, old and new, have always looked for king instead of the king. We want to put forth our heroes, people who have great personality, charisma, connections, humor, gift of gab, tenacity of spirit. We like our men strong. We like our women strong. God has a very different set of qualifications. If you were here at Grace Life for any length of time, you were here for our study in 1 Corinthians. I'll call it to your memory. Remember how Paul started that book? Chapter 1, 26 through 29. He said, consider your calling, brethren. Look around the room. There are not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. Look around the room. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong. And the base things of the world God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. 
so that no man can boast. And Paul himself put himself in that category. Later in the next chapter, he gives his own testimony. And he says, when I came to Corinth, I came in weakness. I came in fear. I didn't come with great oratory skill. And the fascinating thing about that, you remember, is he had all that. He was educated under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of Sanhedrin. He was a big dog. But remember in Philippians, once I came to know Christ, it's not about the big dog. It's about the big God, which is spelled backwards, by the way. So you learn to do that in preacher school. <laughs> he went on to say that I understood the purpose of God. It was not my power, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to suggest to you today with this pedigree is that Nehemiah could well be the poster child for the seemingly insignificant qualifications of God's ministers the ones that will be used. There's just not a lot recorded in terms of his abilities. What we do see is his availability and the heart that motivated him to be available. We instantly see his passion in verses one and two. Notice it's winter, probably November, December, 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. He's in Susa, the winter palace. Very important insight. What's Nehemiah doing in the king's palace if he's an ordinary guy? Well, you skip down to verse 11, you find that he was the cupbearer, often translated butler. Tasted the king's wine and food before it was served to the king. Check for poison. Someone tried to poison the king, you end up with a dead cupbearer. Important position. Trusted position. Often built an intimate relationship with the king because the king's life was in his hands. Besides that, he got to live in the palace, got to live in a state of luxury. And I read historians who said this was often a very high-paid position. Comfortable life. So Nehemiah is hanging out in the king's kitchen, experiencing good quality of life, when all of a sudden his daily routine is interrupted by a visit. Look at the verse, what's it say? One of his brothers, Hananiah, and other men from Jerusalem, very important, arrive on the scene. Now think about that. Put it into our culture, if you would. You would think with humanity's infatuation with the rich and famous, that the conversation at this point would focus on the goings on in the palace. I mean, this happens all the time in our modern world. We have television shows and magazines that keep us informed of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. The stars, their latest fashions, the state of the economy, the stock market, and of course our sports teams. Nothing wrong with that. It's all part of the playground God made for his kids. Those things are not to dominate us. They didn't dominate Nehemiah. He had a much bigger issue that needed to be dealt with. He had passion. Look at the verse. What does he say? He says, I want to know two things, guys. Just two. How are the people? How are the people? How are they doing? And how's the place? How's Jerusalem? It's very significant because Jerusalem is the place where the temple, temple is where people met God. So what he's really asking is, how are spiritual things going? How's the work of God going, the kingdom? If you look at it, their answer is very brief. That's very common for people who are in pain. 
You know, when you're in pain, the danger is that you're going to lose it. And so you say very little words because the more words you say, the more the pain's liable to come out. And that, that can make people uncomfortable. We all do that, don't we? The dam might burst. So look what they say. The problem now, third major point, is pedigree, is passion, and his problem. They tell Nehemiah that the people are in distress. Is that what it says? Mm-mm. Read closer. They're in great distress. They're under reproach. That means they're being persecuted, ridiculed, shamed. Think about this. Don't, don't read this lightly. They're trying to rebuild their lives out of the ashes. They're trying to get back on their feet. They messed up. They're trying to forge a new beginning so they can experience what God had promised, that he brings beauty out of ashes. They want to trade their shame for, as God says in Isaiah, a double portion of blessing. But their real building efforts are being thwarted. The work they're doing is being torn down by their enemies and burned, they say. Oh, don't miss that. They're getting new ashes on top of their old ashes. Think about that. You get up every day and all it is is ashes. And the present ashes remind you of your past ashes. That's not fun. The new mercies of the morning that God promised are doing nothing but turning into mourning at night. Grief. They experience loss and frustration and disappointment over and over again. When that happens, it's very easy to slip into stinking thinking, gang. Who am I to think we could, I could do this? I knew God would never use me again after what I did. I'm just a failure. Nothing I do ever works. Why do I even try? I quit. Are you here today? Brings us to verse four. In my opinion, this is the key verse in the whole book. This verse talks about what Nehemiah said and did, and it magnifies who he is and what he's all about. I want you to notice what he didn't do. Very important. He could have offered a pious platitude, which a lot of people do. Well, you know, Hanina, they... They only have themselves to blame. They brought it on themselves. Bible says, reap what you sow. If they hadn't sinned so badly, this wouldn't have happened. That's right, he wasn't even born in Israel. He was born in Babylon. He had nothing to do with what his ancestors had done. Could have done that. You've been the victim of that? He could have offered the lofty language of supposed spirituality. This happens a lot too. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'll put them on my prayer list. And then get right back to work and very quickly forget about them. He might have prayed. We'll give him that. And if, in fact, if you read the text, he did pray. Key is that's not all he did. He did so much more. 
In the following verses, we're going to look at four dramatic responses on his part to the news that he's just been informed of. Dramatic. You see, when you're, when you're a teacher, you look for the right words to use. Why dramatic? The word means spirited, active, vigorous. He heard with his heart, my friends, not just with his ears. I want you to notice what he did, the first dynamic response. The first thing he did was hurt. We'll call it his pain. He embraced personally what those people were experiencing. His passion was for people, and when they were in pain, he was in pain. And so his first dynamic response, look at it. He says, I sat down. That is so significant. That's the posture of devastation. It's a posture that emanates from sorrow that is so great you can't stand. The news of another's pain has hit you in the gut and it knocks you down. That's Nehemiah. I would suggest to you it's a posture that can only happen to those who love. Because the pain by the object of your love takes away your ability to stand. I read a quote this week, really good. Grief is love that has nowhere to land. That's powerful, isn't it? Grief is love that has nowhere to land. It's the sense of being overwhelmed. You know, the, the first thing we hear when there's bad news of somebody we love, what do we say? No, it can't be. But it is. Secondly, look at his next response. He says, I wept and mourned. You know, in many cultures, including ours, tears are a sign of weakness. From the time a kid is a little kid, what do we tell them in this culture? Big boys, what? Don't cry. But the word of God is clear that men of God cry. Paul cried, weeping over his countrymen. Jesus cried. In the Psalms, it's quoted, I willingly shared the burden of reproach they brought on themselves. In complete contradistinction to those who say, what's that got to do with me? Jesus says, your pain is everything to me, even if you caused it. We've been given such big new hearts. Our hearts are like God's hearts, hearts that are so in touch with others. We now cry over them when they cry. Nehemiah left his comfortable palace world and chose to become uncomfortable, to share the sorrow of those he loved. E.M. Bounds, I found this quote, he said, how few are the men in these days who can weep at the evils and abominations of the times. How rare are those who are sufficiently interested and concerned for the welfare of the church to mourn. Mourning and weeping over the decay of religion, the decline of revival power, and the fearful inroads of worldliness into the church are almost an unknown quantity, end quote. Look at verse four, it says his tears and grief went on for days. We're gonna skip ahead. We're gonna skip to chapter two. Guess what, gang, it went on for four months. That's how great his burden was. It says thirdly, he fasted. In the Old Testament, I did a little research. Do you realize there's only one day of required fasting? Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. It's the only day that's required. 
I would suggest to you that Nehemiah's fasting was not a requirement. It was a relational response. I would call it the work of the wound. It takes away your appetite. I have no will to eat. Now when I see somebody I love who's in so much struggle. And fourthly, he prayed. This is not a word of prayer. You know how we use that phrase? Let's have a word of prayer. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not belittling it. This is not a ritual prayer. You know those. Our Father who art in heaven. If you're of another perspective, hail Mary, full of grace. Ritual prayer. This is not what his is. It's not a formal prayer. We do that too. We even teach it in the church. A-C-T-S, Acts. First you do adoration, then you do confession, then you do thanksgiving, and only then when you've appeased God do you offer supplication. It's not that either. Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer that's an errand of real life. If you're one of those who write in your Bible, and boy do I encourage you to do that because you'll always have it with you, the Hebrew word for prayer there literally means to plead, to beg. I like this translation to desperately lament. For, for Nehemiah, I'd put it this way, prayer was an issue of the gut. If you've lived it all, you know that that's the place in a human being where the pain of this world settles down. It settles in the gut. And there in the gut, it percolates and percolates and percolates until nothing can come out but an anguished cry from the depths of the soul, and it's a cry directed to the only one who can really hear and act on our behalf. Do you remember the words of Asaph? Who do I have in heaven but you, O God? What else did he say? Who do I have on earth but you, O God? And that's who he offers his cry to. Psalm 34 says, the righteous cry out. Look, listen to the language. And the Lord hears them. Isn't that good news? What do I care? God says, I care. And he delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near. I like the better translation, close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Man, I like God never says to a hurting person, get yourself together and then I'll help you. That's not God. That's I'll meet you right where you are. It's an utter failure. And I'll put you back together. It's what the word saved really means. See, the church uses the word saved for destination. We got saved out of hell. We got saved to go to heaven. The word means to be made whole again. It's a good word. The world fractures us. God puts us back together. Ray Stedman wrote these words. 
Prayer is not a happy face sticker we paste over our sorrows. Prayer is not a superficial salve we spread over a deep cancer. Prayer is honesty and deep emotion. Prayer often involves weeping and fasting. Listen to these words. Above all, prayer involves facing the facts, telling it like it is to God, vomiting forth all the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the loss. Because as the psalmist says, my sacrifice is a broken spirit and a contrite heart that you, O God, will not despise. God says, I understand. And I'm here to help. My favorite prayer in all the Bible is Daniel 9. Encourage you to go read it and compare it to the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. They're almost identical. Which is fascinating to me. Same spirit working in each man. Hmm. Daniel 9 says, oh, Lord, hear. I mean, if you're not going to hear, what's the point of praying? Oh, Lord, forgive. If you don't forgive, I'm in a mess. Oh, Lord, listen. I like this. And act. Don't just understand. Do something about it. For your namesake. And the angel Gabriel shows up to Daniel. I love this. He says, Daniel, listen to this. It's so cool. As soon as the words left your lips, the command from the throne came. Go! And I was off on my journey to you. Is that incredible. The moment the words leave our lips, the command from the throne, go. Could we ever think of prayer as insignificant and impotent? I mean, we use it that way sometimes. We say, well, I'll pray for you. I mean, if that helps at all. I will pray for you. I will take you and bring you to the throne of heaven for our God to begin to work. Huge. And so we come to the prayer, verses 5 through 10. We're not going to read it. We don't have time. I encourage you to. It's the first of 12 recorded prayers in Nehemiah. That's significant because there are only 13 chapters. Isn't that Interesting. Leadership qualities, Mm -mm. dependence on God. 12 times, 13 chapters. It's not about me. It's about what God wants to do in and through me. That's what it's about. I don't want to dissect this prayer. I don't want to outline this prayer. I don't want to turn it into a pattern or a model. If you do that, you miss the point of the prayer. This prayer is an issue of passion. This prayer is an issue of pain. It's not an issue of the mind where we pray from rote. It's the anguished cry of a heart. A child crying out to their heavenly father. That's what what this prayer is. I do want to point out the key elements. First of all, look at it. The emphasis of the prayer. Get this. This is so important. It's not on the pain. The first words out of his lips are not. Look at Israel. Look at their suffering. Look at the hurt. Look at the loss. Look at the sorrow. That's not what he does. That's what we're tempted to do because it's so powerful against us, right? 
first thought out of his mouth. The focus is on God, the one who can do something about it. Only then does he talk about what's happened. First, he's going to the one who is happening. He's the God of heaven, Nehemiah says. That's throne. That's might. That's power. That's a big God. And I think he mentions heaven because he can bring heaven to the hell on earth that we experience sometimes. Jesus said the same thing. Our Father who art in heaven. That's how he started. Then he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Same prayer. Isn't that interesting? Same spirit. Without God, please hear me, we just have tears. That's all we have. With God, our tears, Psalm 56, are stored in a bottle by him. What's the point of that? Others may hear about you and forget. I will not forget you and what you're going through. I will not forget. It's an affirmation to us that what we're going through is not the end of the story. The rest of the entire prayer, I'll put this up for you quickly, is either paraphrased or directly quoted from Scripture. Isn't that fascinating? The Word of God poured into this man, and when it came time, he poured the Word of God back to God. He prayed to God God's Word. Interesting. Then he talked about what was happening to Israel, just as God had promised. They rebelled. They got disciplined. Then he reminded that God will restore them in their repentance, just as he promised, as he always does when there's repentance. And then he does this. He petitions God for him to open the door. This is key. For Nehemiah, the cupbearer, who lives in palace, to become a dynamic agent of international politics, something he was totally unqualified for. Isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. I know nothing about what's needed, but I'm not just going to pray. I'm going to open the door for me to be part of the answer to the prayer. Amazing. And in the closing words of the prayer, I love this. He declares a heavenly perspective about all of this. Don't miss it. I want you to look at it in verse 11. See it for yourself. We're going to call this sixth point a proper perception. Look what he says. Grant your servant compassion or favor before the king. Is that what it says? Read it, my friends. That's not what it says. Not what it says at all. He says, grant your servant compassion or favor before this man. Did you see it? Artaxerxes is the single greatest, most powerful man in the world. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Nehemiah, rightfully so, is timid to go into his presence. I mean, if he's having a bad day and looks at you and says, execute that man. This is huge. But before God, this king, 
He's just a man. That's all he is. Before God, this gut-wrenching problem, it's just an opportunity. Proverbs 21.2, listen to this. The king's heart is in the hand of God. And he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And Nehemiah is saying, Lord, you put me in this place and time so that you could affect the circumstances people find themselves in through me. Wow. Just an ordinary man with an extraordinary God. I want to leave you with three thoughts. Meddle a little bit today. So I don't want you walking out of here going, man, that was really something that happened with Nehemiah. I want all of us walking out of here saying, well, what is this saying to me? First of all, where's your heart? Where's your passion? What is it that lights you up? See, wherever you find people, my friends, you're going to find need. And that question that Jeremiah asked is still being asked today. Who will have pity? Who will even ask? Who will be the one to care? Questions being asked of us. Secondly, and this is a little poignant, are you willing to weep? Are you willing to experience pain? Well, that's not really what I signed up for. I signed up for heaven. Get my sins forgiven, get to go to heaven. Uh, I, I signed up for being conformed to the image of Jesus. I really like that. Strength and peace and joy and honor and dignity and all of that. I love that. Don't you? If we're fully going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we need to understand that Isaiah said he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Oh. Can that be an elective course? If you read Isaiah, God wants to sit down with the bruised reed until they can play beautiful music again. If you read Isaiah, you'll find that God wants to sit down with the dimly burning wick whose light is almost being snuffed out by this world until they can put their faith in God again and shine that light brightly once again. Is your passion for people and for the business of the kingdom Would you offer yourself in prayer for God to make you successful in the pursuit of that passion? And then the third thought I would put for you is this. If you've answered yes to those first two questions, you're not going to go anywhere if you don't apply this one. Will you keep your eyes and heart open to perceive where God might be leading you to affect the lives of others? I want you to think about this. Nehemiah was having just another ordinary routine day till a visitor came to the palace. 
Life was changed forever. Made me think about a guy named Moses. He's just out there caring for a sheep. Another ordinary routine day. Been doing it for 40 years. There's a burning bush. Life was changed forever. It was just another routine day for the young man David out there caring sheep. He did it every day. Somebody named Samuel came along and said, King? It was just another routine day of fishing for a group of guys named Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Would you watch out, my friends, for the hand of God to invade your ordinary day with the opportunity for you to experience an extraordinary God and offer you the chance to not only learn about what others are going through, but pray and bring their name to the throne and then offer yourselves as the potential answer for the very prayer you just prayed. This is not a book. I'm sorry, I hate to take odds with scholars. This is not a book about leadership and qualities of leadership. It's about a book about a man who just simply has two things. A passion for people and a passion for the kingdom of God in those people. And the rest of this book is hang on to your seats because God's going to work fast. Hope you're around for the series. It could be life-changing. Father, I bring the name of the saints of Grace Life Fellowship to your throne. for you to open their eyes to their beautiful hearts and open all of our eyes to the opportunities that look like obstacles. No such thing with an extraordinary God. And may we see the opportunity for all of our lives as ordinary people to lay hold of this extraordinary God and touch lives that can be changed forever. Wow. May the command be already issued. Go. And now y'all go. Go be the church. All right, that does it for chapter one. We hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out over the next couple weeks as we catch you up on that whole series. And we'll be back again this Friday with another edition of Conversations in Grace with Jesse and Pastor Tim. So we hope to see you then. Thanks for listening.